good evening, Internet audience. Welcome back to This Heretical Life. We are all the way up to episode five. And uh, sorry that it's about a week late. We had some, I didn't really have technical difficulties last time. We just had life difficulties. I had a very sick 11 month old who would only be consoled by dad. And so it kind of made recording impossible. So we're a week late. We appreciate your patience, those of you who are actually still out there. Um, I, as always, am your host, Brian Thomas, and I'm joined by my co-host and much handsomer sounding person, Adam Leggett. Hey, everybody. So we're on episode five, and after spending four episodes, I guess, talking a lot about how we got to where we are and why we got to where we are, uh, and for those of you who may be new to the show, where we are is I am a catechumen in an Eastern Orthodox church, and Adam is a full-fledged member of a Roman Catholic church. And so now in episode five, we kind of wanted to start talking about specific things, specific things that uh, really serve to illustrate the differences that exist between the more ancient traditions of Christianity that we now align ourselves with and the Protestant or evangelical traditions that we came from. So we wanted to start with one that was super non-controversial and one that everybody could discuss really calmly and with inside voices. (laughs) And that is Sola Scriptura. Fun stuff. Very fun stuff. Very fun stuff. Um, that's one that I don't don't know. I can't really speak for you, Adam, but for me, I remember that one was just sort of a, almost just like a light bulb moment. Like it was, Mm -hmm. it was there and then it wasn't, you know, or, or, you know, it was like, well, solo scriptura was this sort of sacrament of Baptist thought that was just, it was true. It was obvious. It was right. And then all of a sudden one day, you know, it was just all of a sudden it was not anymore. It was something that I looked at and was like, Oh no, I don't, I don't agree with that anymore. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, it it really is. So, so one of the big hinges upon which the door to the, the door that goes in between, I would say Protestantism and a more ancient or traditional uh, view of, of Christianity is this idea of where does the final authority on truth, where does that rest? Like, where is that at? Mm. Uh, how, how can we know for certain, sorry about that. Uh, how can we know for certain that what we believe is true? I uh, just, so everybody knows that sound you just heard was, uh, a light bulb going off over the head. Uh, <laughs> our first one of the season that's that's right we look forward um, to many many more yeah. um so yeah so if you if you believe in what we're going to be discussing right this idea of of sola scriptura then it kind of rules out any kind of uh any kind of tradition or papal authority or magisterial teaching or yeah. uh, any kind oh, of binding yeah. the requirements councils, the church from traditions. Yeah, and... traditions, because although 
maybe some Protestants to say, well, there's some things we can learn from those things. They're not binding on us. They don't, we don't have to do what they say, or we don't have to believe what they teach that they're, that, you know, people make mistakes, right? Yeah. So yeah, the only thing we can know for sure that is authoritative and binding on our lives is the scripture. So that, that idea of, of where does that final voice of authority come from? Is it the scriptures themselves? Are they self-authenticating? Are they, I mean, all the things we'll get into here in a moment, or uh, did, has God given us other things as well? We're, again, uh, we'll say this over and over again as we go through this podcast. We're not saying that the scriptures aren't authoritative or right. that they're not necessary yeah. or they're not beautiful and good and God-breathed and gift from God, but is that all that God has given to us that's binding upon us sure. uh, for the way that we live our, our faith and we live in our lives? And at this point, both of us would say, no, Scripture is not the only thing that God gave us uh, that should be binding upon us in the way that right. we live in our faith and, and yeah. you know, what we believe to be true and, uh, and what we reject as... Mm -hmm false yeah and, and to piggyback a little bit or maybe take a half step back from what you just said about you know this sort of disagreement is where does the authority lie one uh, one area that we would be in perfect agreement with our brothers and sisters who are still uh you know who are of an evangelical or protestant tradition is that we believe that authority absolutely originates with god there is no person or thing um, that has um, inherent authority in and of itself. You know, no one can just stand up and say, "Hey, I have authority because I am me." Um, mm -hmm. The authority to teach, to train, to instruct, to command, to, to in any sense bind the church and to bind Christians originates from God. And what right. we're talking about. Is and then you use this terminology, I think, in your explanation. But just to make it super clear, what we're talking about is uh, upon whom or upon what did God lay that authority? Right. Um, so we're not going to argue that that authority can originate from anywhere else but God. But what we where we do um, differ from our evangelical brothers and sisters is where did God place that authority? you know, in totality or, or over what multiple things or entities or did he place that authority? And you and I would even disagree a little bit on that because For Catholics sure. believe in, uh, you know, papal supremacy and, and we Orthodox, we ain't about that. Right. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> um, but we do agree. And again, you and I agree and, and you and I and our evangelical listeners agree that authority comes from God, absolute and no doubt. Oh, yeah, I know. So where does – is that authority just given to Scripture? Is it given to Scripture and other things or other people? Um, does the authority that Scripture has come directly from God or was it sort – or is it more – secondary is probably not quite the right word. But is it like did God give that authority to something or someone else who then – looked at scripture or produced scripture and said, yes, this is also, this also shares in this, this authority, this power, this is also a gift from God in this way. Um, mm -hmm. And just, we've come to different answers on those questions. One thing that would probably be helpful is, is to start by kind of putting a baseline of what do we mean when we talk about sola scriptura? 
um, which can be difficult because you can talk to different uh, Protestants and evangelicals of different traditions, and and their view of it is going to differ slightly from a Baptist to a Presbyterian or from a Presbyterian to um, a Pentecostal, which I'm going to be really honest and probably insult my Pentecostal friends. I don't really know what y'all believe about that. Um, <laughs> uh, or, or pres- you know, Presbyterian or, or an Anglican or, or a, a church of Christ. And you came across mm-hmm. some stuff that kind of um, had a couple, had a, I guess a couple different substantial camps in that. And then there's minor camps and all that, but, sure. but, uh, what what were the two, I guess, sort of primary groups that you discovered when you looked into that a little bit? Yeah. So it it kind of gets uh, a little, I don't know if Harry's the right word or, or dicey. People parse terms uh, to uh, the nth degree when we, we talk about these things. But like you said, just to kind of give a really broad overview of two major camps in the Protestant world uh, when it comes to how we understand the authority that Scripture has uh, in our lives and how we're supposed to read it as Protestants. One would be the term uh, sol scriptura, so uh, S-O-L-E, scriptura. And that would be the idea that if it's not explicitly taught in Scripture, then it's not binding. You know, mm. the, or, or even that you can't do it, right? You can't, so if, yeah, yeah. If you if you can't point to a place in Scripture that says do this, whatever this is, whatever X is, you you know do X. If it doesn't say that, if you can't point to chapter and verse, then you don't need to do it at all. Mm. So one example that might be one that people are kind of familiar with uh, of a of a denomination that would fall into this camp would be uh, like Church of Christ, like the old school Church of Christ, mm-hmm. where they don't allow musical instruments in their worship. They One of the arguments that they would make is, well, you can't find that in the New Testament where it says to do it. You can find places where it says to sing hymns and songs and psalms and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, but it doesn't say anything about instruments. So we're not going to use instruments. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That would be an example of soul scriptura. For Baptists, uh, our tradition that we were raised in, uh, they would take that line of reasoning when it comes to infant baptism. Right? Well, it doesn't say scripture and verse, and they baptize the infants also. <laughs> and so because of that, because it doesn't explicitly say to do it, we're going to argue um, for that reason and others. Granted, I'm not saying that that's as simple as the argument gets. But that would, would be one primary reason why we wouldn't baptize babies as Southern Baptists, because the Bible doesn't explicitly say to do it. Yeah, yeah. The other side of uh, this argument is the a word that's probably more commonly known among evangelical and Protestant circles, and that's sola scriptura, S-O-L-A. And that's the idea that there are other things outside of scripture that can inform our interpretation of scripture mm-hmm. and can inform our uh, view of how we understand scripture, the, the history, the, the historical context or whatever, or even, even the church fathers and, and those types of things. But they would argue that the only thing that you can say is binding on us is the scripture itself. Mm-hmm. So, 
so you can go to the church fathers to maybe glean some wisdom or insight into maybe how the scriptures are supposed to be read, but you can't say that the church fathers throughout time can make you read scripture a certain way. Right. There's there's the, nothing nothing you can really say. There's no authoritative argument as to why their interpretation is correct, is any more right. correct than um, what you or I may come up with. Now, there are reasons you can give um, to argue why theirs is correct. Like, well, they, they were very uh -huh. revered. They were very holy. Right. Um, but when it comes down to it and you have to choose between interpretation A of the Church Fathers or interpretation B of Stephen Furtick – well, if, you know, at the end of the day, you just you just have to do your best because the only thing that you can know, it, it's it really and this is where it gets really hard for me now on the side that I'm at to try to understand and get my brain wrapped around how I used to think in, in a weird way, because really, at the end of the day, what it means is the only thing I can know for certain is true is scripture. Yeah. But there's there's really no way to know for sure if I'm reading scripture right, because there's there's no authority outside of scripture that's infallible. Yeah. I, scripture uh, is infallible. It's true. Yeah. But we just have to wrestle through and hope we do our best at understanding what it really means. Yeah. Would you think they'd be much more understanding of heresy then, but they're not. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. I have, there was a, um, a pastor I know who, who once when he was asked about, um, a particular passage, interpreting a particular passage. And it was sort of, it was one of those passages where you kind of felt like if you had been there, you would have known what, you would have known what it meant. But mm -hmm. today in our time, it's kind of difficult to figure out. It could mean this, it could mean that. Right. And We're so far removed. We know it's true in its yeah. original form. It's God's breathed. It can't be wrong, but eh, you could go either way and, and, you know, we're make, we we might make a mistake yeah, in how we understand yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, and what he said when he was asked was, um, when when somebody asked him, well, you know, there's these multiple different possible interpretations. Which one, which one is right, or basically, which one do you recommend? And he just said, yeah, just pick one. Um, mm -hmm. Which was kind of like, okay, that's an interesting way to go about it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no that that was that was kind of the end. <laughs> I didn't. Okay. Really <laughs> uh, so just to just to give you an example, which I've already used, but of of a sola scriptura position would be like Anglicans or Presbyterians who do baptize babies. Right mm. there, there's nowhere in Scripture explicitly that it teaches that you're supposed to baptize your babies in the New Testament. But again, they would say, well, as we look at Scripture, it doesn't disallow for it, first of all. Right. And, and second, there are places in the Old Testament, if we, you know, see the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. And there are places in history, the church, where it seems to be commonly accepted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That this is just what's done. And so, therefore, uh, we will you know, believe that it's, it's true and it's a, a practice that we're supposed to follow and participate in and, and those types of things. And they would have different reasons as to why Presbyterians view what baptism does a little differently than Anglicans do um, and so on and so forth. But they would both agree that you're supposed to baptize your babies. Uh, 
One thing. So that that was the example. No, I was just going to say that would be an example of sola scriptura. Right. Right. One one thing that's kind of funny, uh, and that was odd to me, sort of even years ago, before I ever would have dreamt that I'd end up where I am now, is how when you get into arguments, especially when you talk about like infant baptism, and you can argue, you can talk to someone about it who is pro-infant baptism, and they would say, yeah, well, the original readers and the original hearers of these accounts and these letters would have understood that infants are included. That just would have gone without question, you know? Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, okay. And then you could talk to someone who is credo-baptism only, and they're like, yeah, well, it doesn't specifically say that. And if it doesn't specifically say that, then then there's no reason to think it would do – you could make that argument, but it's not there in Scripture. Sure. And And one thing that's sort of funny about that is kind of like, well, you're – I don't want to put bad faith on on people who I know don't have it, but a, a trap that's really easy to fall into is to start thinking consciously or unconsciously that when the Bible was written, they were thinking about you. Mm. How would you, a 21st century American, read this and just plain reading? Sure. Um, and it's funny in law school, we talk about when we come across a statute that we have to interpret because we're trying to convict somebody of a crime or n- get somebody not convicted of a crime is just like, if the statute can be ambiguous, the first thing you start off with is like a plain reading. If a plain reading is still ambiguous, then you go and you look at evidence around the drafting of the statute, like, uh, mm-hmm. amendments before or after, or especially you look at, um, reports and notes from the committee that drafted the statute and what did they say they what did they say it meant like when they put the statute in place what did they say they were trying to do and that's not like absolute authority but you give that a lot of weight when you're trying to interpret something Um, sure but it's really easy just to look at at scripture and like, especially when you talk about like baptism, or like you know, it doesn't say anywhere explicitly. Like you said, they went and baptized the infants also. Mm-hmm. Um, and if and if we're reading it today, uh, without the benefit of of received tradition that's authoritative, then we're going to likely read that and say, well, of course they didn't want us to baptize babies. Otherwise, they would have said, step two, baptize all the babies. Mm-hmm. And they didn't say that, so they must not have wanted us to do it. Which sure. is is unintentionally kind of really arrogant to think that the Bible two thousand years ago was written so that I could just pick it up and understand it perfectly the first time I read it through. Sure, sure. Which really kind of more grappling with that ambiguity or or kind of trying to figure out well what did it mean when it was written was really what started opening the door for uh, to me to look at older commentaries you know and not just like matthew henry old but like saint irenaeus and and saint clement and things like that clement of rome old to see like when they talk about baptism of course they're baptizing babies to them it's just it's just a given you know right um or to read about the lord's supper and they say yeah this is the body and blood of christ and i remember in seminary reading uh, a letter that clement wrote um when they were dealing with what do we do with these people who during the 
during the persecution, I don't, I don't remember which emperor it was, they recanted, and now they're right. wanting to return to the church. Do we allow them to take communion? And it was a really big deal. It was a really serious question because to them, communion was not just you know um, bread and wine. If it was just that, I don't think they would have cared as much. But they sure. they to read it, and they're saying, "What do we do with these people who denied Christ and yet want to come and partake of Christ? Should we let them? Not in a sense of punitively." Should we punish them in this way? But is it safe for them to come and partake of Christ in this way after they've denied him in that way? Mm-hmm. And that's that's neither here. That's going off on a little bit of a tangent. But just to kind of talk about and look at how received tradition is such a gift to the church. And the more you look at it and the more you study it, to me, such a necessity for the church and for the church mm-hmm. to – to persevere through time in such a way so that without the benefit of received tradition, if you looked at the church, uh, if you take like one section of the church, like here's the church in 16th century or 6th century Corinth, and then you say here's the church in 21st century America, without a received tradition to bind those two together – they're not really going to look the same mm-hmm. to the point that what Corinth over here says is essential and what America over here, you know, 15 centuries later says is essential. They're not even going to say the same things. Right. Well, I mean, a, a great example of this in modern time would be Protestantism uh, in the sense that even within the same. Well, I wasn't going to name names, but section (laughs) even within the same section of time right not even separated by 400 years or 600 years or a thousand years but even within the same section of time if you don't have something outside of scripture itself that you can say is authoritative and binding well look what you have you Mm -hmm. have thousands of different protestant denominations that all disagree about all different kinds of things. Some of them, yeah, you might could say are small and significant things that aren't really that big of a deal. Some of them are pretty big. You know, like, yeah. does baptism save you? If it does, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So when you, I mean, just, just case in point, okay, if, if you don't have tradition over time that binds you, you end up with two churches that look nothing like over time. Well, even within time, you know, even within the same time frame, you end up with churches splitting off, you know, from their quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see it, their their mother church, right? The church that they split off from uh, because, well, somebody didn't agree with their pastor or with their leaders about such and such. And so they're going to go start their own group or their own denomination and this just happens over and over and over and over and over again because all you have is well, scripture alone right yeah. which 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 really ends up and and i think we're probably getting a little ahead of ourselves but really ends up being me alone right and that's really harsh and people are going to think that's really unfair but i'll go ahead and and say it right because at the end of the day if scripture alone is authoritative but you still, you're still reading it and interpreting it, 
right? You're still reading it and trying to figure out what it means. And what ends up happening is you end up with, and, and I used to do this too. So I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be ugly or, or rude necessarily, but you end up with people like John MacArthur, right? Just as an example for those people that know who John MacArthur is, you end up with someone who claims to believe in scripture alone, but at the end of the day, he'll tell you that how he understands scripture is right. And if you don't agree with his interpretation of scripture, then you're wrong and you're perverting the gospel and so on and so forth. Well, how can you say that, right? If if scripture alone is authoritative, you can't tell other people. It just, I don't know, in my mind, it just gets um, really kind of hairy. But I, I do think I do think we were getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit in the sense that we need to go back, I think, and look at a couple of uh, arguments against sola scriptura in uh, a little bit more of a presuppositional from a from a a slightly more presuppositional perspective. Uh, so let's let's do this. Let's go to Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen, because one of the arguments to be made here is that okay, if you believe in Scripture alone, that it is your sole source for infallible truth. Mm-hmm. Then logically, if you're going to say that nothing outside of Scripture can be binding on the believer for their faith or practice, yeah. or if you're going to say that Scripture has to explicitly say something in order for it to be binding on someone's faith and practice, then it would make sense that Scripture itself would teach that. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then you're you're really... You've got this really horrible circular reasoning thing going on where you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Because your statement about Scripture alone being authoritative isn't supported by Scripture. Therefore, your argument's null and void. Yes. This, it's very, this problem, very problematic. Yeah. yeah, it would be. Um, so one of the verses that people go to most often to defend this idea of sola scriptura would be Second Timothy chapter 3. Uh, verse 16. I'll go ahead and start reading verse 15, uh, and then we'll read 15, 16, and 17, I guess. Okay. Uh, This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, starting in verse 15, from infancy you have known holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. And just for the listening audience, just remind you, that's a Catholic reading scripture, and we know how hard it <laughs> It burned a little bit coming out of my throat. <laughs> oh, it's tough. Uh, you know, sometimes you got to do it. Proud of you. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's a text that's pointed to a lot. In fact, when I was going back and and sort of looking up some um, articles, um, trying to trying to look and see and, and be reminded of uh, how and why evangelicals um, put forth Protestants put forth sola scriptura and how they argue it and reason it because you don't they want to get on here and be. I'm mean, gonna disagree with them, and I'm probably gonna make jokes about them because I do about everything. But I don't want to be uncharitable and like mm. grossly misrepresent their For argument. Sure. Um, 
hopefully not misrepresent at all, but, but give, be able to give a really honest uh, presentation of it. And that's, that's a verse that cropped up in in both of the things I went back and read and went back and looked at is that um, particularly, like you said, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and, and so on and so forth. Sure. You know, one of the first things that comes to mind when I, when I read this is if, if this verse is supposed to be taken, or these verses, if this passage is supposed to be taken uh, literally mm. and as all-encompassing of one's argument about the authority of Scripture, then... It seems to me that it, it would it would it would be Paul kind of almost shooting himself in the foot because at this point we know from from history the only that, that the New Testament was not compiled yet like right. it wasn't even it wasn't even completed correct mm-hmm. and and most scholars that I've read even Protestants would argue that the scriptures the Holy Scriptures specifically that Paul is referring to is the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's he's not only saying that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, righteousness, so that the man of God may complete, may be uh, mature, fully equipped for every good work, but he's saying that it's enough to point you to Jesus because he says, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's without the Gospels, that's without... Uh, any of the rest of the letters. Yeah, if you're right? just, if you're if you're assuming that all he can possibly be referring to uh, is written scripture, you know, which is like holy writings. If right. if you realize if you're going to say that scripture constitutes holy writings, and therefore what Paul means here is all holy writings are given by inspiration of God, then yeah, that's a conclusion you're you're sort of pressed towards. Yeah. So, well, that that's a problem in and of itself. Right. So we could just say, well, no, the New Testament, I mean, maybe it's good, but it's uh, maybe not necessary for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, you know, or um, maybe how do, you, how do you know that the New Testament is God breathed and useful for instruction, for right. conviction, for correction, for training righteousness? Now, I, I'm not we're not saying that it's not. We think that the New Testament is a part of Holy Scripture, we, you know, all those different types of things. But we're just saying that if you. If you take this and say that um, it appears, if you just read it at face value, mm-hmm. and with, within the understanding of its historical context and the fact that not all the New Testament was written at this point, and we know that most of the New Testament was not compiled so that any one person could have access to it, uh, you've you got some problems. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. Because it, it's essentially saying that, you know, it's not it's not necessary the new testament right yeah, like it's yeah well you know whatever so i, I don't I, I just by I don't know, argument of reason it just i really the more i thought about it the more that i studied the more that i read and listened to people it's like man it just it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense and if you're gonna say that the new testament is holy scripture you say okay well how do you know mm-hmm like how how do you know that um, you know Timothy is a part of Scripture, right? We we know that there were other letters written. We know that some of the early churches read the letters of Clement, 
yeah. as a part of their scripture readings every Sunday. So why aren't those included in our, you know, in our New Testaments? Yeah. Um, how come, you know, we, I mean, Martin Luther, right? He wanted to get rid of Hebrews and the letter, of, you know, written by James because uh, he didn't like those. I think he called <laughs> James an epistle of straw. Uh, you know, so how do we know he wasn't right? Yeah. yeah. Right? Like what? who's to say what's included in scripture and what's not when, when Jesus, I mean, even if you can, at this point, even if you can believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are authoritative, um, in none of those did Jesus say, okay, these are going to be, you know, these books are going to be written by these people. And I'm telling you, you need to listen to what they have to say because they're speaking on my behalf. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's no point where Jesus is like, all right, so, Peter's going to write a couple, John's going to write a few, and right. you, you Pharisee in the back, stand up. Please don't write your name. Saul, <laughs> yes, all right. he's going to write some too, later. Right. Don't worry about him right now. He comes into play later. Just sure. be mindful. He's going to write some stuff later that's going to be really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's another thing, um, which maybe is, in some ways it seems really trite because it seems so like uh simple but the idea that all right if you're going to argue solo scriptura that the bible itself is that the canon i'm going to say the canon of scripture the canon of scripture itself is the supreme authority and really whatever sort of vein or or um flavor or brand of solo scriptura or soul scriptura you, I gotta stop saying that because the more I say it, the less I think I'm saying it right. <laughs> but whichever scripture alone, scripture alone, alone you which, just say that. whichever sort of version of it you um, subscribe to, one constant that runs through it is the Bible as as the su- supreme authority that gets its authority directly from God that needs no outside sources to verify its authority mm-hmm. that it's, it's God breathed, God given. It doesn't need man to say it is what it is. It it says, God says that it is what it is. Well, if God is the one that says it is what it is, and if scripture constitutes sort of the totality of what God has said that is authoritative and binding on man, then the only place that God could say that scripture alone is correct is in scripture, and it's in Mm -hmm. scripture alone. And you're talking about this collection of writings that span thousands of years. Right. And that there are like brother and sister and cousin writings to a lot of these writings that aren't included in there. Right. So how do you know – like where did God lay out what should and should not be in the canon of scripture? Mm -hmm. And so that seems like a really – sort of like a gotcha argument that some undergrad's going to walk up to a microphone and try to trick somebody like Ben Shapiro into falling for or something. But, but it's sort of true. Like if, if that's it, if it's just these 66 books, if these 66 books constitute the binding authoritative revelation of God to man and only these 66 books, then the reality that these books are that authority has to be in the book somewhere. And, it, and it's there's no list in there. There's not even really a, a criteria of here's the test that you run to figure out which books are authoritative and which ones are not. Now, people will say, and I've heard, you know, scripture will interpret scripture and it'll point you in the right direction. But but you just kind of highlighted the kind of the trip with that is that 
some people have done that like Luther and he's kind of been like, I don't think this one belongs. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people have said that about Jude or, or Hebrews or James or, or um, you know, I've heard people put uh, throw doubt on, on, on second Peter or on um, I don't know, like Philemon, like what's that doing in there? Right. Um, so <laughs> there's got, it, it can't just be left up to random people's thoughts on the matter. Right, and even if you do agree on what books, then you got, then you even get into the, uh, like we were talking about earlier. Okay, but then how do you know you're reading it right? Yeah, like how do you know that yeah. as you read it and you study that you're coming to the right conclusion? Right, which is the so, the flaw that pretty much undergirds or undermines scripture interpret scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't agree on what scripture says, so if you interpret scripture this way and I interpret scripture that way, then. When we start applying that to other parts of Scripture, we're gonna we're just gonna slowly but surely diverge further and further away from each other, mm-hmm. which is what you yeah. see happen between denominations and what you see happen within denominations. Right. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it bears repeating that when we when we as Catholics or Orthodox read verse sixteen and seventeen of 2 Timothy 3, we we don't cringe and kind of, you know, oh, kind I, of I skirt do. around I, it. I have to make a kind of cross <laughs> whenever I read that. You know, hiss uh, like, like Dracula at a, at a wooden stake or something. Right, right. We, uh, we, we say hearty amen. Yeah, right? like this, absolutely. This, there's no part of us that doesn't believe that Scripture is God-breathed. That it's useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, for training in righteousness, mm-hmm. so that the man of God can be complete and fully equipped for every good work. Some people, um, and I've heard this argument, say, okay, well, if Scripture can fully equip you for every good work, then you don't need anything else because you're mm-hmm. fully equipped from Scripture. And and I would, I guess I would just argue, okay, well, I don't know where you learned how to read, but, <laughs> um, you know, like, just the logic of, of reading is an example would be me um, maybe being a mechanic and, you know, okay, well, like you're, you're, um, if you want your car to be fully operational, right, you need to make sure that the oil is good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And then somebody walking away thinking, okay, all I have to worry about is my oil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that, that, that's, no, that's, that's not, true that's, yeah. that's stupid right like uh no you've got to have gas you need to check your transmission you need to make sure i mean there's a whole list of things but the statement is still true mm-hmm. that you if you want your car to be fully operational or fully equipped to do what it's designed to do then you do have to check your oil yeah right like so so to say that in order to be fully equipped you have to have scripture doesn't necessitate a rejection of everything else or or anything else mm. right it, it can still include other things uh and you still say you, you have to have scripture in order to be fully complete and and again to that catholics and orthodox would say amen right like as a catholic i'm not going to be a good catholic without scripture i have to have scripture it has to be a part of my faith and my life and my prayer and our worship and orthodox would say the same thing I mean, it, it is a part of our faith, our life, our worship, our tradition, right? Like it's our, our faith and our tradition wouldn't be anything without scripture. I'm sorry. I got distracted. I was making a note to go check the oil in my car. 
<laughs> no, but you're right though. Like, um, the more I am able to attend and participate in liturgy at our Orthodox church, the more appreciative I am of how much it is formed and guided and mm-hmm. ba- and, and just comprised of scripture. Right. Um, and how each prayer that we pray is scripture filled and how each prayer we pray is meant to reprove us and correct us and give us instruction and in righteousness. And I think one thing, uh, one essential sort of aspect of it is to realize that scripture can be profitable for doctrine and for reproof, for correction and for instruction and in righteousness in ways outside of this general sort of expositional preaching box. Like, like I, I miss expositing scripture. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. But I have become appreciative of the other ways scripture is capable of reproving me and correcting me and instructing me in righteousness through even through things like the repetitive praying of it mm-hmm. Sunday after Sunday in liturgy, praying, Lord, have mercy or um, grant this, O Lord, after uh, after a, a prayer, after a stanza is sung in in church, and and realizing that stanza is from scripture, thinking and meditating about what it means, what it asks of me, what it tells me of God, and being reproved and corrected and instructed in that way, and letting my doctrine become a thing um, less oriented on sort of uh the gaining of knowledge and more situated around the experiencing of church and of what all church is in the orthodox tradition which is the body of christ the bride of christ in in a way and i know and i know evangelicals and protestants believe that too but it means something different in in these traditions that like uh you know, one thing I've heard, and something as a Baptist preacher we constantly push back against, you know, was people saying, well, I can worship God in the deer woods or on the lake. It's true. Uh, you know, like, well, but you need church. Like, well, I'm not really comfortable around people. Like, well, you need to come to church, you need to sing, and you need to listen to the scripture being preached. And like, well, you know, as as technology advances, you can sing with like the best choir, church choirs ever while you're out on the lake and you can listen to podcasts of the best preachers of their generation while you're in your deer stand. Mm-hmm. And if that, and you start kind of running out of arguments to try to make people come to church on Sunday, other than just like the Bible says to do it. So do it. So let scripture mm-hmm. alone, man, scripture alone. Um, but realizing in the Catholic tradition and the Orthodox tradition, um, that's life right there. Um, it's not just the singing. It's not the homily. Uh, it's that's where you come because that's where God has told you he will always, always be. Um, and that's not something, and that was something I think we were taught about scripture. That when you open your Bible and read it, God is always, always there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not ready to tell you that's not true, but it's, <laughs> it's kind of not true. I mean, it is because the scripture is God breathed, but you just can't open the book and say, I'm going to read this chapter today and God's going to show up here. God doesn't work that way. Right. It's true. That's his word, his inspired word you're reading. But 
just because you read it doesn't mean he's obliged to sort of pop up in that scripture passage and bless you that day. Sure. But when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, then that's not you trying to force God to appear in the cup and the bread every time. That's just you relying on the promise of him saying he's going to be there every time. And I don't know how on earth I got into the Eucharist. <laughs> supposed to be talking about scripture alone, but I did somehow. Well, well the scripture made flesh, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the thing, man. That, that was another, that, that probably sounds super stupid the way I just said that. But the the more I began to glory in and bask in the beauty of the incarnation, I don't want to say the less important scripture became, because that's not true, but the more I realized how much, the more I realized how I was expecting from scripture what God had already given me through Christ, and Christ mm -hmm. and scripture are not the same things. You're talking about uh, words on and, and granite, holy words, holy scripture, yeah. like words on a page versus God made flesh. Mm. Right? Like, yeah. Uh, which one do you choose? Right. Like if you're, if you're somebody that, um, I mean, my goodness, if it's kind of like, um, well, that's a, that's a horrible example. No, but I mean, if, if you, if you think about like the early church and we've already talked about this a little bit, but if you're, if you're somebody that doesn't have access to the whole of scripture, mm. what do you have? Well, you, you have worship, you have the Eucharist. Yeah. Right. Like you have, you have the ability to go and to, to actually be in Christ's presence, not just hear about him, but be with him, which yeah. is pretty, pretty stinking cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, we're, we're starting to get up against the clock a little bit, but you know, one thing it's, it's so much easier today to emphasize scripture and say how important it is and how necessary it is when we live in a time when it is, so accessible that you mm. you can go into a hotel room and pull open a drawer and find scripture i uh, i there is a guy on campus a few weeks ago passing out you know gideon new testaments to students it's almost harder to avoid encountering a bible at least in our culture than it is to find one like mm -hmm. it's just the bible is just it's everywhere it's on your phone it's on the computer it's on then the the drawer of the hotel room it's in the hand of the guy on the corner it's it's in every library anywhere and so when the scripture is that pervasive then it's it's easier to say yes yeah, scripture is absolutely necessary you can't thrive and survive without scripture but that's that, that's that can really be a little um like and you're suffering sort of from amnesia there's another way to say it but because scripture hasn't always been that accessible. It hasn't always been that pervasive. Um, mm. The ability to read scripture has not always been that pervasive. People haven't always known how to read. That that's not a skill that was as that was super widespread, you know, two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago. And so right. if scripture is that important, and we've only recently gotten to a point where it's that accessible, then then God kind of left his church hung out to dry for a good chunk of history there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's something I'm not really comfortable saying that God would do that because it's not consistent with the character of God. It's not consistent with how the church acted. The church didn't right. act like an impaired, inhibited little, you know, little baby. It was this crazy, growing, powerful thing back when the only copy of Scripture was arguably incomplete because it was the Old Testament, and also. The, the local synagogue had it, and you had to go borrow it from them whenever you want. You, you had to go to a different house of worship to hear a portion of Scripture read because you didn't have one in your own home or didn't have really a good way to get one. So, so again, I think, I think just historical evidence, I think, I think even scriptural evidence, I think um, evidence from the, the early church. I just think when you look at – all of the testimony of God, and you look at all of history, and you look at all of the life of the church, then you, you come to a different conclusion other than Scripture alone. You, you come to that there was something else sustaining the early church, and if there was something else sustaining the early church, what was it? And did it leave? Did it go somewhere? And if it didn't, then it must still be here. And maybe that's the thing that gave us that God used just to make sure we keep that emphasis that God used to give us the gift of scripture. Yeah. And um, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, and, and uh, there's arguments. Uh, I think I've even got a quote here somewhere. I don't think I, I wrote it. But one of the articles I read, it was an, from answers in Genesis. Uh, it's calling out my name. I don't remember who wrote it, but it's an answers in Genesis basically saying that the time of the early church was sort of this, special era where God kind of gave this extra almost like superpower to the church so they could write scripture. But once they've got scripture compiled, like he took it away from them. Like you don't need that anymore. You right. have scripture. And, um, and well, where is that in scripture? But yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> that, that's what I was about to say. Okay. Where does scripture tell us that? It's just this sort of, right. con- it's this really bad fan fiction mm-hmm. written to try and, Really, it's just the something thing that somebody made up to try and support the, the the idea of scripture alone. Now, granted, not everybody makes that argument. That I think that's a pretty unrefined uh, and mm, sure and unnuanced uh, way to look at it. But that is how some people view it, and it's really, sure. really, it, it's sort of really honest because you it's admitting that scripture can't have just like God didn't just like this is going to sound a little he didn't just like vomit scripture to the early church it had to be written and compiled and formed and that takes effort and intentionality it didn't just happen it doesn't just happen but then it also just kind of hand waves it away like that was a special gift that god gave the church but it's gone now Mm -hmm. so it's both honest and also dishonest sure all right so we've we've done uh a lot of kind of trying to break down and from our perspective show why we don't believe in scripture alone. Yeah. These arguments are not all encompassing. There are no. other things you could look at. This is a, a debate that has been going on for a long time. And we're, we're I hope we're, I know, I know I, I can say with confidence, we're not arrogant enough to think that we can solve this problem or win this debate. Um, in you know an hour. Oh, totally not. However, 
Uh, we're, we're probably going to leave it here for now. Yeah. Next, next time we come together, Brian, let's talk about what we do think God left us. Yeah. We've touched about, we've touched on it off and on throughout this conversation over the last hour. Uh, but let's talk about, okay, well then if, if it's not scripture alone, if you, if you, if there's something else that goes in hand with scripture or dare I say something else that gave us scripture yeah. that God used to preserve scripture for us, mm-hmm. uh, what is it? And how do we know, you know, what we're supposed to listen to. Like yeah, how, you know, yeah. Is there a voice that helps us know how we're supposed to interpret Scripture? Is there a place we can go to to know what is supposed to be included in Holy Scripture? Um, those types of things. I think most people probably know where we're going. Um, yeah. But well, just let's, think, uh, yeah. let's cover that next time. Yeah, and just to sort of give a preview or to let our audience, if they want to try and look and do a little digging on their own. One of the things that keeps, that is is constantly pointed to, and I think with good reason, because it's a very important thing to point to uh, when they point to the importance uh, of Scripture, is the idea that that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about Scripture given by inspiration of God, which could literally be translated as God-breathed. Scripture was given Mm. by and on the breath of God. And I think that is a really important statement. I think it's rightly emphasized and rightly noted. That's a that's sort of a peculiar phrase and peculiar thing for God to do that, to breathe mm-hmm. something out. But I think it's really also important to notice that that's not the only time in Scripture that we encounter that phrase or that idea. And so if people maybe want to get an idea of where else we might be going, I would just encourage them to take a look through Scripture and see what other instances you can find of, of God breathing. <laughs> what other times mm-hmm. in scriptures do we see God breathing or do we see God bringing things into being uh, through, for lack of a better term, the power of his breath. And um, that may, may, anyway, even if you disagree with us, ultimately, I think it'd be kind of interesting if, if we're going to really key in on the idea of when God breathes something, it's really important then let's look around and see what else does God breathe into being that we ought to pay special attention to as well. Hmm. Uh, yeah, something else you could do is listen to the Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack um, to the, the <laughs> song titled Tradition. And just listen to that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, that, that might help too in your, your study and meditation. Yeah, yeah that would also topic. be, yeah, that's, 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 wisdom. <laughs> that's some good guidance right there. Yeah. Plus, that's just that's a really good song. Plus, it's a really good soundtrack. It's a really good movie. It is. It's a it fantastic really, movie. Really. One of the better musicals. To me, a top, um, top probably top five. I'd probably put in the top five musicals. Um, mm. I haven't listened. To it. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it now. But it's it's such, it's got such a different sound to it, you know. Um, yeah. And it's it's so great. It's such a great film. It's good. Yeah, that's really good. All right. Well, Adam, any closing thoughts besides? I mean, you can't really top pointing uh, pointing people to go and listen to uh, to the Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack. Anything else before we sign off? I think I'll leave on a high note. Okay. All right. Yeah. So listen yeah. to the Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack, especially the track "Tradition." And while you do that, flip through your Bible or use some kind of uh, search software and see what other instances you can find where God breathes in 
uh, God breathes on things or breathes out things or breathes into things. And we'll touch on that uh, next time. And next time, maybe we will even sing a chorus of tradition, but probably not on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. God bless. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah.